this, this message series is on God's sovereignty. And we've covered a bunch of stories in the Old Testament, and there's a few in the New Testament as well, where we see things going on in the Bible that are shocking to us, or they don't make sense to us, and we struggle sometimes to put them together. And we've covered some of those things ably here in the past weeks. But I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be sovereign. What does it mean to be sovereign? So it means different things for me and for humans and for nations than it means for God. So for humans and for nations, the concept of sovereignty means that we are self-governing. And we get to make decisions about life, the universe, and everything. But we make those decisions within an existing moral structure. And when we make those decisions, sometimes we do them right, and frequently we do them wrong. And we're either evaluating ourselves or we're evaluating the people around us and our judgment about those decisions can be right, but it can also be wrong. The point of it is, is that we judge imperfectly. And it's different for me. It's different for you. It's different for men and God. There's a passage in Exodus 3, which I think illustrates the difference. In uh, Exodus chapter 3, beginning of chapter verses 3 and 4, Moses said, I must turn aside now. Moses is out in the wilderness, and God is calling him to himself. He said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he, Moses, said, here I am. Here I am. So let's contrast this and Moses' response to the concept of sovereignty as it relates to God. So for God... The concept of sovereignty is not just um, self-governance, it is self-existence, which is something way beyond us. And he doesn't exist within a moral structure, he establishes the moral structure that we live in. Again, massive category difference. And the good news is, because he's an amazing, holy, righteous, and perfect God, when he judges within the moral structure that he's established, he judges perfectly, whereas I judge imperfectly, and you judge imperfectly. He sets the boundaries. We operate within the boundaries. This concept of who God is, this is captured in the same chapter of Exodus, chapter 3. A couple verses later, Moses is talking to God again. Moses says to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Here I am, which is what Moses said, versus I am who I am, which is what God said to him. In my mind, this passage in Exodus perfectly captures the contrast between us and God. For Moses, he has a declaration of location and identity that's reflected from God versus God's declaration of self-existence. His declaration of self-existence, a profound difference. And so because we are fallen creatures, because I'm a fallen creature and you're a fallen creature, you're subject to sin, you have sinned, I have sinned, 
our reactions to this difference between our little realm of sovereignty and his big realm of sovereignty, so our reactions, my reaction is not always helpful, shall we say. So we have a tendency to, there's a couple things we do, probably more than this as well, but these are some of the things that I've noticed in my own life and in the lives of the people around me and the life of our culture and the world. Our tendency is to rebel. We rebel. We judge God rather than worship him. Or we try to remake him. We try to imagine that God or convince ourselves that God is more like us. In fact, there's a scripture where God is chastising uh, the people. And he says, you thought I was just like you. That's not true. Or last but not least, the last refuge of scoundrels such as myself and other people, other fallen people, is we try to rewrite scripture to make it say what we want it to say, and frequently to justify our own sin. So I wonder if you recognize any of these tendencies in yourself, rebelling, remaking, rewriting. These are errors that we commit. But we, again, this is us just reacting against God, not establishing the boundaries I think a good passage, let's read, if you will, if you have your Bible, grab it. I'm going to read Psalm 29. It's a relatively short psalm, but it illustrates if we're ever tempted to, if we're ever tempted to confuse our realm of sovereignty with God's realm of sovereignty, this is an amazing psalm to read. Psalm 29. I'll read it. You just read along silently with me. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is majestic, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon, and he makes Lebanon skip like a calf, and Syrian like a wild young ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve, strips the forest bare, and everything in his temple says, Glory! The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Fascinating image there at the end. He sits as king over the flood. That chapter talks about how he's the Lord over the waters. He sits as king over the flood. I'm picturing God basically ruling over the flood that he initiated at the beginning of Genesis, where he judged the world. He sits as king over the flood. There's no picture of panic. There's no picture of, oh, I've got to fix this. There's no picture of, I, have to, I made a mistake. Oh, I have to go back. He sits as king over the flood in calm majesty, authority, and righteous judgment. This is a good psalm to meditate on when we want to understand the difference between what it means for him to be sovereign and what we, in our tiny little realms, our tiny little spheres of influence, we don't even register 
against this type of sovereignty and power and majesty. So here I am versus I am who I am to a rebellious world. This statement, this comparison, this difference, me saying this difference between me and God, it's a declaration of war to a rebellious world. Our sin rebels against the idea that we owe obedience to a higher power. And this attitude permeates our world. It permeates our world. As believers in Jesus, we like to say, whoa, that's not me, which is good. I'm glad that it's not you. I'm not wishing that on anybody. But we, we swim in this water of disbelief and rebellion. Like we're like fish in a pond or fish in the ocean. We breathe this in from all angles in this world that we live in. And like Jonah, I get angry at a fallen world, but maybe you do too. Hopefully, that's not everyone's response, but I frequently get angry. Jonah's like, God, why did you tell them your good news? Why did you save them? Why did you forgive them? And I recognize that flawed response in myself all too often. Or we get defensive about our faith and we hide when we ought to be confident. Not arrogance, not arrogance, but humble and loving and confident. More about this in a little bit. So the past two weeks we've heard from Stephen on God's sovereignty in the nation of Israel and Kier on God's sovereignty in the rest of the world. And today we're going to consider God's sovereignty over the church and his new covenants and the radical nature of his new covenants. Some of the highlights from the past two weeks are God's sovereignty over Israel was intended to bring them back to a closer relationship with him. God's sovereignty over the Gentile nations was a demonstration of his holiness and plan. And last but not least, God's judgment is inevitable just and delayed. It's delayed. It's delayed by his compassion and not by neglect. So the New Testament, the church, our new covenant. You know, there are some unusual stories in the Gospels and in Acts. We have Jesus casting money lenders out of the temple. We have God striking Ananias and Sapphira dead for lying to the apostles about their gift. And these, these stories, are, they're similar to some of the things that we've read in the Old Testament, some of the stories that we've highlighted, David and Uzzah and the ark on the ox, things that on the surface, they don't make sense to us. Oh, Jesus, he's supposed to be this nice guy and gentle, right? And here he's chasing people out of the temple. Or, boy, they just made a mistake, or maybe they even lied, told a fib, but they really need to die for that. It's like these things, these stories on the surface, they contradict our notions of who God ought to be. And rather than dive in there and read these things, we're not going to do that on these two, on these two examples. Because frankly, these two examples in the New Testament are small potatoes. They are small potatoes. We've got much bigger fish to fry on God's radical nature of his sovereignty in the New Testament. And let's start, let's start here with the mystery that was revealed of the Son of God coming to earth as a human being. The incarnation of Jesus as a baby. He was given, it was a mystery, it was, it was the New Testament, Paul describes it as a mystery that surprised the Jews in the New Testament. 
But God, in his radical sovereignty, decided that he was going to solve the problem of our eternal need by sending the Son to earth to die on the cross. That is an amazing act of intervention and sovereignty into our history. Another aspect is the astounding contradiction of the Son being utterly cut off from Father while he was on the cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the same man, Jesus, who said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. How can he be cut off from the Father? Well, the, the answer is, I mean, on one level, is I, I don't know. That's an, amazingly, it's an amazing concept. But the literal answer to how he was cut off is because my sin and your sin and your sin and the sin of the world was placed on him. And that sin cut him off from the Father. That is an amazing act of sovereignty from God to allow his own son to be cut off from him utterly. Another aspect that is just an amazing, unpredicted act of intervention by God is the unexpected gift of God's presence in our lives through the person of the Holy Spirit when we trust in Jesus Christ for our the salvation for salvation, when our sins are forgiven, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity indwells us. That's amazing. Unprecedented, unpredicted. What an intervention in our life. What an act of sovereignty for him to decide to do this. And then comes the fulfillment of the Old Testament concept of faith. I was going to say the introduction to faith, but we all know that the idea of faith was not a new concept in the New Testament. Abraham displayed faith. Phineas displayed faith. God said, looked at certain people in the Old Testament, said, because of their faith, they have righteousness. So this concept of faith, righteousness through faith, is not a new thing in the New Testament, but it was fulfilled. And it wasn't isolated to individual people based on specific reactions. But this was a new covenant that God established. Permanent salvation by faith and not by works. Now, again, if you're at home in a church or you're fluent in Christianese, these things seem like old hat. And that's good. If you've grown up with this and these things are familiar, great. If you've been in church most of your life, or all of your life, and these things are familiar, great. But these are radical concepts outside of Christianity. You know, in his sovereignty, think about it for a minute. God the Father, he could have required that we live perfect lives. In his righteousness, in his holiness, he could have demanded that we live perfect lives before him. He could have required that the blood sacrifice system that he set up with the Jews continue indefinitely if he wanted to. But in a radical demonstration of his holiness and his compassion, he provided a permanent solution for our sin. Every year when we do our Seder meal, we read along in the, the elements of the Seder. And part of the call and response we do as a family is that praise God who provided a permanent solution for our sin. He provided a permanent indwelling of the helper as a seal. And he swept away a system that for over a thousand years required repetitive sacrifices. That's a lot of bulls and lambs and doves and 
burned wheat and poured out wine. A lot of people laboring and serving in the temple over a thousand years. He called it to a conclusion. It was swept away. All that temporary stuff swept away in his sovereignty. He decided, I don't want that anymore. I'm going to solve this problem permanently. Permanently. He's going to solve it not by extracting something from me, not by extracting something from you. He solved the problem with his own resources, with his own sacrifice, his own love, his own grace. The fact that he solved this problem himself and put it on himself, took it on himself to solve this problem, this this is truly more shocking than any ox cart in the Old Testament. We look at something in the Old Testament, we say, it doesn't make sense. Fine, sure, it doesn't make sense. It makes, it's, but it pales in comparison to the fact that he replaced a temporary, repetitive, bloody system with a permanent act of love and forgiveness. That's shocking. In our limited, fallen imaginations, we shake our fists at his judgment sometimes. Either in our weakness or the world that doesn't know him frequently. But don't you see? Don't you see that his most radical, shocking act of sovereignty is in our favor? It's to help us. It's to solve a problem that we couldn't solve. We rebel against what we wrongly think is petty acts of judgment, and we ignore this massively, shockingly, radical, permanent solution that he gave us. Oh. Let's look at it from that perspective. The truth of the matter is, he's harder on himself than he is on us in that regard. Harder on himself than he is on us. The disciples said, Hey, we want to be like you. We want to do what you're doing. And he said, can you drink this cup? And they said, sure, we can drink this cup. And not, nothing against them. They're like me. They're limited. They didn't know what they were saying. He said, you can't drink this cup. And when Jesus was in Gethsemane, he drank that cup. It was the hardest thing he'd ever done. Not as hard as what was still to come, but it was hard. I once heard a preacher say that he thought that Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying, was the start of him perceiving his separation from the Father. And it's part of the reason why he was bleeding and so distressed. He's harder on himself than he is on us. He's harder on himself than he is on us. That's the shocking thing, is that he did the hard part that we couldn't do when he was not required to do that. All of this was hinted at in the Old Testament, but it was never spelled out. And then last but not least, another shocking element of the New Testament is he, his decision to use us, me, you, his children, build his kingdom. He established a very inefficient means to build his kingdom. Very inefficient. Very fallen. You don't have to read much of the New Testament to see that man, they, were, they got off track almost immediately. And then church history is filled with immediate mistakes. 
heresies and bloodshedding and bad stuff. But through his spirits and through his word, he's maintained his church through the centuries and millennia. We are inefficient means to build his kingdom. And yet in his shocking sovereignty, he didn't pick the most effective, the most efficient way of building his kingdom. He gave us that privilege, which is amazing. And all of these aspects, these elements here on this chart, all of these things, all these aspects of the church, they were a surprise to a bunch of first century Jews who just wanted a political solution to their problem. Money and power and fame. He had a much different thing in mind. They were a surprise to the Jews. These things ought to be a delight. They ought to be a source of delight to me and you. A bunch of 21st century Gentiles. So his radical sovereignty, radical permanent solution, radical permanent salvation. His most radical acts of sovereignty are in our favor. And his sovereignty is astonishingly compassionate and creative. Hence the fact that people were surprised so much by how it manifested. These facts, these facts are demonstration that his sovereignty is not capricious or cruel or incomprehensible, but rather it's part of an eternal plan for his glory and for our good. And I urge you, as you think about what we've ta talked about these last three weeks, and we think about these amazing mysteries that are revealed in the New Testament, submit your heart. Take some time and think. You've got the note sheets. I encourage you to submit your heart. Earlier I said that the world rebels against the concept of being a difference between us and God. We're created beings who owe God allegiance to God. First, we must submit ourselves to God. In order to put some, put some teeth on this and to, uh, to do what I said, but to submit yourself to this, we have to submit ourselves to God. And we also need to have an appropriate response to a hostile culture. Peter said, always have a response ready. We can't hide from this, our families or our workplace or the world around us. We can't hide. We have to have an appropriate response. And who remembers what that response is? What I said earlier. Any guesses? Any recollections? Humility. Great. Excellent. Starts with humility. Love. Confidence. And this, there's a New Testament word for this concept of humility and love and confidence. And that word is meekness. It's a key concept by Jesus, taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think this word encapsulates what's required of us. Humility, love, and confidence. When we're attempting to wrap our heads around God's splendor, this is a way to make it practical, I think. This is a way to focus our attention, to meditate, and to ask for him to help us. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. It's also translated meek. The Greek word is praus. And I've printed out a, an extended definition for it. We won't go through all that. But on the back of your sheet, I've taken an excerpt from Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary. It is an amazing 
definition. And I encourage you, if you need a, if you need a time, if you need something to focus your quiet time on, I would encourage you to read that definition and look up some of those verses. It will challenge your heart. Meekness, I think, is one of the most important words in the New Testament. It's the perfect blend of faith, submission, and confidence. It's a perfect definition for the concept of humility. Here, I'll just read these two excerpts very quickly from the definition. Meekness is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. And it's the equanimity of spirit, equanimity, peace, stability that is neither elated nor cast down simply because it's not preoccupied with self at all. Not occupied with self at all. Meekness is our response towards God. Meekness is our response to a lost world. And meekness is our response to God's sovereignty when it doesn't make sense. And when we have the grace to actually worship it as well. You know, our flesh, our flesh, Satan, the world is constantly screaming in our face to rebel and judge God. And I, we often say, oh, I wonder what heaven will be like when I have a new body and I no longer have my aches and pains. And that's something to look forward to. But you know what else we can look forward to? I wonder what heaven will be like when we no longer have my fallen nature. I no longer have Satan. I no longer have a rebellious world screaming in my face to resist and reject God. Instead, I just have a glorious picture, a glorious, not picture, presence of God in front of me with no distractions, able to accept his sovereignty in perfect peace and rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, you are holy and righteous and perfect and powerful and wise and loving and good. Ah, oh, you are eternal. And I could spend all day praising your name and not say enough. And it's okay. It's okay that I can't articulate it. I have so much to learn. I know that through Christ, my seeking of you is acceptable and pleasing in your sight. It pleases you. When we turn to you and say, Lord, I'm listening. Lord, I love you. Lord, you're worshipful. Lord, I worship you. Lord, I desire to obey you. Oh, oh, you accept these things. And I give it to you right now. And I pray each one of us would give you that. Teach us, Father, to be humble, to be meek. To be the right blend, the perfect blend of submission and confidence in proclaiming your glory. The perfect blend of love and grace and confidence in facing a world which doesn't yet know you. In Jesus' name, amen.